Amen. You may be seated for a kindergarten through third grade or dismissed for junior church. If you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 22, and you might be going, what in the world? Why there? Well, you'll know in a minute. I've called this, if you weren't here last week, this is a COVID Christmas, simply because as I studied the Bible and I studied the background and uh, the context of not only the foretelling of the coming of Christ, but the actual coming of Christ and then immediately following his birth, we find that at every turn, there's gloom, despair, there's misery, there's war, there's hardship. There's just something bad happening continuously. The bottom line is there that there's hope in trying times. No matter what happened, Jesus Christ still came. No matter what happens, God's will will be done. And I'm going to give you the end of the sermon at the beginning, and that is this. No matter what happens, God has triumphed. No matter what happens, I and you should be salt and light in a dark and dreary world. When everyone else is losing hope and the suicide rate is going up and psycho meds are going through the roof because people are depressed, you, me, Christians should be the ones that say there is hope and I don't live being controlled by my circumstances. I'm controlled by the one who came for us, the one who is in heaven, the one who has done everything for us. I'm going to end with that, but I just want to let you know, that's where I'm going with this whole thing, just in case you were wondering. Uh, Last week was looking at the prophecies concerning the Messiah, and every one of those that we looked at was in a trying time. Today, we're going to look at the circumstances of his birth. Next week, we're going to look at what happened after he was born, which is actually the most horrible and bloody and nasty of all of them. And then the last one, we're going to look ahead. And that'll be uh, Christmas Sunday morning. We're going to look ahead because the first coming was the first coming, but there's a second coming. And uh, before he comes for the second time, uh, it's going to be pretty nasty also. So anyway, just letting you know why I did that. And uh, if you notice at the bottom there, it says hope for trying times. And that's absolutely what I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches. So, as we look at the story of the incarnation, the first coming of Christ, we find that right up front, there was a legal problem. You go, hold it a second, I never saw that. Oh, you have, maybe you just never thought about it. But we're going to look at it uh, in maybe a different way than we've looked at it before. You see, the one who was going to be born, Jesus Christ, had to have the legal right to be the eternal king. He had to be the descendant of David who had the legal and royal rights to be the king of Israel and the eternal king. But there's a problem in his genealogy. Now, there are two genealogies in the New Testament, one in Matthew and one in Luke. The one in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, is about his legal father. Notice what I didn't say, his human father. He did not have a human father. If he had a human father and it was Joseph, he cannot be the king of, that is promised to David. He cannot be the eternal king. But 
Joseph, and we'll see where this comes from, was his adoptive legal father. And so, because he's not the physical father of Jesus, but the legal father, there is that possibility uh, of him being the king who God had promised through David. Now, the genealogy in Matthew, and the, they look a lot alike, but they are not alike. Some of the names are the same. But there's one major name <clears throat> that is different in each one of them. In the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, you will find that the line comes through Solomon, the son of David. He is the one that was promised that he would be in that line. He is in the royal line. We're going to see in Mary's genealogy, she also comes from David, but not through Solomon. So that's important. We also find that there is a fly in the ointment. And if you're in Jeremiah chapter 22, uh, that's where we're going to be going for here. Because there was a guy by the name of Jeconiah. He is also called Coniah. And he's also called Jehoiachim. And uh, one and the same guy. There are people that come to Garden Chapel that are known other places by a name different than what I know you. And people say, well, so-and-so comes to your church. And I'm like, who are you talking about? And then I start thinking, I'm going, oh, you mean, and it's another name. Well, in the Bible, there are sometimes two and three names for the same person. In this case, that is exactly true. It's one and the same. And uh, this guy was, a bad, was really bad news. He was the second last king in the nation of Judah. And because he was such a lousy king, God had some problems with him and said that he was cursed and that none of his sons would ever sit on the throne, ever. So let's look at what it actually says. So there is a curse and they could not occupy that. So if Joseph, who is in that line, was Jesus' physical father, he would have disqualified Jesus from ever being the king in Judah as well as the eternal king that was promised to David. So, <clears throat> let's look at this, and I'm in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. A signet ring is not like you wear a wedding ring or a class ring or an engagement ring or something like that. Even though all of them symbolize something, a signet ring is more than that. It's a, in essence, uh, if you're a notary, uh, Craig was in the earlier service. I know he's a notary because he's notarized stuff. People sign something, then he takes a stamp, goes on top of it, so it cannot be erased, altered, or anything else because it's distorted and makes that. Well, a signet ring was used very much like that. If some official correspondence or a contract or anything was, was written, they would fold the paper up, put a glob of sealing wax on it, and while it was still warm yet, they would stick their signet ring in there. If that was disturbed, broken in any way, you know that it very easily could have been altered. He said, even if Coniah was my signet ring, I would rip him off and throw him away. Hey, the sign of, I've said it's true. He, that's a pretty dire statement, but it doesn't stop there. 
because it continues on in verse 28. It says, Is this man Coniah a despised shattered jar? Question mark. Or is he an undesirable vessel? Question mark. Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? That's the captivity. Question mark. He said, Here's what I'm going to tell you about this Coniah guy. He's a broken vessel. Now, I've already, much to my wife's uh, chagrin, I have pulled the glass out of the cupboard to get a drink and dropped it on a granite countertop. That doesn't go well. Uh, I've had to clean up a lot of glass occasionally. But you know what I've never done? I've never taken the pieces of that glass, put them back down there, and decided to pour my iced tea in there anymore. You know what? It's a shattered glass. It's a utensil that's not good for beverage or food or anything else. You throw it away. He said, that's what Coniah is like. He's like a broken glass, a broken uh, vessel that you would use to cook or to serve food or anything else like that. He says, I'm throwing him away. In fact, is he is going to be uh, hurled into another land. And you know that the Babylonians came along and they took them out of there. Now, Coniah was not the last king in Judah. He was the second last. Normally, what you would have is your son would be the next one in line. Coniah said, not going to happen with you. How do I know that? Because verse 30 says this. Thus says the Lord, write down this man childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. By the way, he did actually have sons. But it was as if he had no sons. It was prestigious. It was handed down. We don't understand that. We, we vote on our politicians and our presidents and those kinds of things. They didn't. It was handed down to the next generation. There was one more king... But it wasn't one of Jeconiah's sons. It was his uncle who was the last king in Judah before they went into captivity. So right then and there, he said, this isn't going to happen. None of your sons are going to do that. So you're considered as childless. It would have been like a king who never had a child, so he couldn't pass on the throne, the royal line to his children. So in essence... He was childless, not because he didn't have a child, but simply because no one was qualified because he was cursed to pass it on to the next generation. And so it made it very clear. Uh, verse uh, 17 of uh, Jeremiah 33 says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man uh, to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Hold it a second. He's in the line, the royal line, but you can't pass it on if it's a physical son. That's why it's absolutely imperative that Joseph was not the physical father of, of, of Jesus. If he was, Jesus would be disqualified to fulfill everything that the Bible says about him. So Christ was not under the curse because he was not the physical son that's why the virgin birth exempted Jesus from the curse that Jeremiah talked about uh, in regards to Coniah or Jeconiah. So 
that's, that's Matthew's genealogy. On the other hand, there's Luke's genealogy, which is Mary's genealogy. In this case, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time because I'll run out of time. But he is the physical mother of Jesus. Some people teach that Mary was the mother of God. That's not true. God is eternal. So that would mean Mary had to be eternal. No. Remember what we talked about last week. For unto us a child is born and a son is given. There was a physical birth. Mary is a physical mother, and Jesus is one person with two natures. I'll give you a really fancy theological word that you'll probably never, ever use again. Hypostatic union. (laughs) You go, what the world? That's okay. I'm not trying to be smart. It's just a theological word. It simply means, by the way, I see somebody back there. uh, When Andy first came to Garden Chapel, I called him up and I started talking to him. And he said, Paul, what's the hypostatic union? Do you remember this? You were testing me. And I said, well, if this is, I didn't know him at all, so I didn't even know if he knew what it was. So I said, well, if this is what you're talking about, here's what it is. He is 100% fully God and 100% fully man. That's Jesus Christ. The human nature, personality, flesh, everything came from Mary. But the other nature is 100% God in one person. That's who Jesus Christ is. And so the physical part of that is from Mary, yet without sin, because sin is added to human nature. It's not ultimately a part of human nature. It was added because of the fall. And she came not through Solomon. He was the one that had to come through if it's going to be royalty. She came through Nathan, one of David's other sons. But she is still in the line of David. She is still a descendant from David. So this is going to, as we said, this always comes back at Christmas time. It comes back to the virgin birth, the virgin birth. It just seems like it's a broken record. But without that, none of these things can be true. And uh, we're going to see this in another point in the sermon. But this has the need of a virgin birth because her husband, Joseph, cannot be the father. So um, Mary is still in the line of David. So uh, both, both parents, the adopted legal parent as well as the human parent, are both through that. So the... Problem with the genealogy, it's solved by a virgin birth, but it causes a problem. Then there are some very disconcerting moments in this whole thing. I have never had an angel show up and start talking to me. I was talking to Dave Lamb before the first service, and I said, what would you do if an angel showed up in your living room and started talking? He said, I'd probably faint and fall over. I don't know that any of the rest of us would be much different than that. I know this, and my wife and I have had this conversation. I've had it with a few other people. Because if I'm working in my shop, I'm normally working with things that require my fingers to be within inches and less of very fast-moving things or things that I'm hammering. And I like my fingers on the ends of my hands. I like my blood in my veins. I don't like them smashed. And so I'm concentrating. And if somebody walks up behind me and says, Hey, Paul! (sighs) You know, 
I, I am uh, I'm just discombobulated for a second. Well, these disconcerting moments happened. And the first one we're going to talk about is Mary. Now, I don't know what Mary was doing. I have an idea she was going along in her regular, ordinary, daily routine. She is betrothed, which means she is technically married to Joseph. Um, and she's in that year before to get married. And I... She's going along either, you know, doing the regular domestic chores or getting ready for a wedding ceremony. I don't know what she's doing. All I know is this, that out of almost nowhere, she hears, and this is Luke chapter 1, verse 28, uh, she hears something, an angel. And it says it was Gabriel, and he came to Nazareth, and he simply says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. (laughs) Now, I don't know. Did she see the angel? Did she not see the angel? Did he sneak up behind her? I don't know any of those things. All I know is one minute, regular life, and the next minute, Hail! Hey, you're favored with God. God's with you. Now, I've never had God speak to to me out loud, and I've never had an angel uh, talk to me or appear to me, or any of those things. I've had a few times when I was praying, and I had to make hard decisions, that it was almost like God spoke out loud. He never did, but it was almost like that in my head. Uh, And that's even startling. It's like, whoa, I've been praying about this and couldn't figure this out. And all of a sudden, boom, there it is. Um, And so it kind of catches you by surprise. In this case, Verse 29 of Luke 1 says, she was very perplexed at this statement. Now, the word very is the word that gets translated into English by the word mega. She was mega perplexed. Above and beyond, really highly perplexed. I'll get it out. Uh, Means to be agitated, to be alarmed, to be troubled. She never seen anything like this before that we can understand about or know about. And uh, so, whoa, an angel. Something is out of the ordinary, and she is not exactly sure what to think about it. She is troubled. And then it goes on to say, and kept pondering. Sorry, I was behind myself. She kept pondering what kind of salutation or what kind of greeting this was. The word ponder is the, the word that has to do with to take inventory of what is happening. I don't know about you, but sometimes if I am concentrating on something and then I get a phone call and somebody's asking me a question, I've been concentrating on something with a sermon or whatever else, or Peter and I are in one of our high-energy high, uh, uh, theological discussions, and Jacob will back that up because we annoy him, I think. But we're discussing something, and, and we're trying to work something out, and what does this mean? And then I get a phone call, and to go from thinking in that direction and concentrating, all of a sudden, it's a, some other question, and I have to go, hold it, hold it a second, I've got to get, or got to re focus my mind because my mind is focused on something else. And old people don't refocus that quick. I don't remember this when I was younger, but I do now. But I have to refocus. Well, guess what? Mary's going along and now she has to refocus. And she has to start thinking differently. And that's that whole idea. Uh, I'm trying to understand, but it's hard to get a grip on it. That's where she's at. 
So it startles her. It troubles her. She's got to think it through. She's reflecting on it. Um, and there's just this gritting one way and the other in her mind. And then the last one, verse 30, is the angel says, do not be afraid. Well, guess what? If the angel's saying, don't be afraid, that means she was afraid. Because he is comforting her and encouraging her in that direction. And in Greek, the word fear or afraid means to put the flight. It's like, don't turn and run. Don't go away. Don't be terrified by this whole thing. I'm here for a good reason. And we already know that because he said, the Lord is with you and you're favored. And then the angel goes on to say, when he says, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. God is in control of this situation. He's the one that sent me here. I have some good news for you. But I got to tell you, that's startling, perplexing. You put whatever word, you may use a totally different word for this in your own thinking. But all it means is, whoa, this is not the normal, and I have to come to grips with it. I got to get my mind wrapped around what is going on. That's the start of it. But the second part is the one that I told you we emphasize, we keep coming back to. And that's the impossible situation. Because the angel goes on to say, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, she knows enough about genealogies that a son born to her, and uh, we see what the impossible is, it says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. She knows she's not in the royal line. She's a descendant of David, but not in the royal line. So there are a lot of things going on. This is impossible. This is impossible. And Joseph can't be the father because if he's the father... Uh, that's in the curse line, so it can't happen. There are impossible things going on. So if you're wondering why she had to mull these things over and ponder them, there's a lot going on here. But notice it says, you shall bear a son, that's the opposite of a female, and you have a name already given, that's Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. The self-existing God is also the one who saves And he'll be great and be called the son of the most high. Now we go back to that hypostatic union. Because the word son is used two ways. It's used of a male, male descendant. He's going to be a male. And it's also used of someone with the same character and nature. So what she's saying is he's going to be a male human being. But he's also going to be God. Oh, and his name is Jesus. Now, I know, I remember my grandmother talking about Pennsylvania Dutch days way back, is when a lady was pregnant, they would go to the, uh, oh, it's not witch doctor, it's, um, what is it? Yeah, a powwow, like a powwow, and and they would try to find out what what the the gender of the baby was going to be and those kinds of things. If you think that uh, Pennsylvania Dutch doesn't have occultic things in, uh, you would be wrong. Just look at their barns and 
Well, you know what a hex sign is. That's exactly a part of the occult. But the whole point is this. They were trying to find out. Today you go get a sonogram, you know, and you can get that pretty easily and, you know, know ahead of time and you can buy the right color whatever and, you know, that kind of stuff and tell everybody, you know, get the right thing, not like it used to be. Point is, she didn't even ask. She, as far as I know, she's not pregnant at this point. It's, hey, you're going to have a son. He's going to be king. And he has a name. Jehovah saves. That's an impossible thing. It doesn't happen that way. And how do I know it's impossible? Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answers her and says, here's how it's possible in an impossible situation. The Holy Spirit will come upon him, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And uh, later on in that same passage, it says that um, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is something that's not possible. You cannot look at this and in rational human thought, in the way things work in this world, it's not natural. It's supernatural. He's God. Christ is a holy child, different than every other child ever born. Can you imagine, I can't, if you were Mary, and put all this together and get it straight in your head. I can't imagine how long that took. I know it took quite a while because even in his younger life, they still didn't fully grasp the whole thing. Even his disciples, after being with him for years, didn't fully grasp who he was. This is impossible stuff. It's supernatural. But there's also a moral dilemma. That moral dilemma... Oh, hang on, I'm behind myself again. I'm trying to go too fast. There we go. There is a moral dilemma. Because in Matthew chapter 1, and you all know this... It says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So, here it is. There is a lady who says, I'm a virgin. Joseph, who knows he is not a father. But yet, the betrothed, the one who he's married to, they haven't had the marriage ceremony and marriage proper yet. Hold it a second. There's a problem here. That's not my kid. That's not my child. I got to do something about this. And so you find Joseph has a moral dilemma. I think Joseph had to be more trusting even probably than Mary in some ways because he's kind of like the outside guy. And so when he finds this out, that his betrothed is pregnant. By the way, betrothed is, in case you don't know, uh, it's a little like our um, engagement, but it's not. You were actually considered husband and wife. You were legally married, but it was about a year later when you actually consummated the marriage, had the marriage ceremony, and you began marriage proper. 
That's how that worked, okay? I'm not going to go into that. It's a whole sermon in itself to, to go through that. But Joseph, it says in verse 19, her husband, notice, Joseph, her husband. This is during betrothal. That's how I know I'm right about this whole thing. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. The word send away is the word divorce. No other, there's no other way to cut it. It is the word divorce. Did he have the right to divorce her? During the betrothal period, he absolutely could do that. If she was found to be immoral, had a child in this case, he had the right to divorce her. Under the law, he could have had her stoned. He could have made a big stink about it. But he was a righteous man, and I'm going to guess, this is my opinion, this is sanctified imagination, he loved Mary. He did not want to disgrace her. Even though he knew it wasn't his child, so that meant she was promiscuous, uh, she was fooling around with somebody else, he did not want to do anything to really harm her. So he said he's going to do it behind the scenes, and they could do that uh, by that time, and that's what he'd do. Well, he is thinking this, notice, and when he had considered this, it's kind of the same way as Mary pondering what the angel said. He's like, man, I can't come to grips with this. I mean, I know who she is, that she's not that kind of person, and I know it's not mine, and man, I just don't want to do anything horrible to her. And, and he's got all this going through his mind. So if you think this is all easy in some sanitized version of a nativity play, you've got to see all that's going on here. Well, guess what? God's not silent one more time. He sends another angel. I don't know if it's Gabriel or not this time. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And if you were reading along, you saw a word as in there. The word as is not in Greek. It simply says, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Because they were already husband and wife. He said, don't be afraid to go to the next step in you know, marriage proper. Don't be afraid to go that direction. Because he said, Joseph, I'm going to tell you. Something impossible happened. Yes, it's a moral dilemma. But I am the one that placed the child in her. God is in her. God is the one who is conceived was by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, she shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he repeats to Joseph what he had told Mary ahead of time. And when you continue on down to verse 24, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife. The words Mary as or her as are not there again. Simply, he is now continuing on. He's not going to have her put away. He's not going to divorce her. He's going to continue on with that marriage process. And so... There's a moral dilemma. Can you imagine that he's in that? The angel appears later this time because he first has the moral dilemma and then he has to deal with it. And then God sends the angel to give the solution, the kind of the backwards of from Mary. But then there's the political drama. Now, if you think that government has overreached today, and I think they do in many ways. 
They're nothing like the Roman government. Here's what was going on. Herod, we'll see him next week. Herod, a paranoid, power-hungry man who wants to be liked by everybody and wants his own way. He is ruling, and he ruled from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now remember, he's a part of this story. So this whole event of the birth of Christ has to take place before 4 B.C. And considerably before that, when we look next week, and I'm just laying the foundation for that, uh, Jesus had to be born somewhere about 6 B.C., maybe 5, but somewhere in there. We don't know exactly. But he is the king over the, the part of the Roman Empire that includes Israel. And it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Now there went out in those days a decree from Caesar Augustus. If you don't know, Caesar Augustus is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, There were others more famous than him, like Julius Caesar and people like that. But he's the first one. And during his reign, it says a census was taken. And he reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. So that's a pretty broad, but it's right in the same place. So the Bible, you know, is right on target. But then you come to Cyrenius. Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now the word governor, you need to understand, is not like Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania or Governor so-and-so of another state. It is simply a general, generic term for anyone who had official authority in the Roman system. People said, this can't be true because... uh, he was only in power from 12, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, I lost my place. He, uh, hang on. I just lost my place and I can't find it now. But anyway, it was like, oh, there, I found it. 6 to 10 AD. Well, that doesn't work because it was during the time of Herod, but it also was when he was governor of Syria. So, well, the Bible was wrong again. And that's what people said for years. But when you do the research, you find something different. You find a dilemma that is actually and a drama that actually has a conclusion. Because he was a ruler, an authority, two times in Syria. Once from 12 B.C. to 1 A.D. And then he was out of power. And then he was back in again. But notice what it says. The census was taken. And this was the first census. There is a second census. They were taken approximately every 14 years. The second census you find in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Uh, And that was much, much later uh, when he was probably again in power. The point is this. The Roman government was in control of the inhabited world. It doesn't say cosmos there. It is the inhabited or what we call the civilized world. They ruled everything and they ruled with an iron fist. If they said this is what goes, this is what goes. They could say to a citizen of any country, a soldier could walk up to you and say, carry my armor for me. You didn't get a choice. You had to carry it. And Jesus said, hey, you know what? Don't fight with the government. It's not nice. It's not right. But carry it two miles. Whoa. 
I don't like that. I don't like what the government tells me to do. <laughs> I don't either, I've got to tell you. The problem is, Jesus made it clear, you know what? This government's overreaching. They had power. And they did a lot of good things. They put in roads and aqueducts, and they made life really good. But you know what that takes? It takes a lot of money. And they wanted to make sure that they had the cash to do it. So what did they do? They had a census. The census was simply this. You are signing up to pay taxes. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> we, we have a hard time, and we have people saying, oh, you, you can't go a mile down the road and vote and, you know, cast your ballot. we got to do other things. Well, guess what? They didn't care if you were a pregnant lady and you had to go 80 to 100 miles to even sign up just to get taxed. Remember, these guys that collected taxes were despised. We know two of them by name, Zacchaeus and Matthew, one of the disciples. They were despised, hated people. Why? Because they worked for the Roman government. It overreached. It had power. It did whatever it wanted to do. And you had to, you had to capitulate. Nobody liked it. The Israelites didn't like it. This sound like anything any of you have heard lately? You know what? It didn't stop God from carrying out his will. I got to tell you, somebody said to me last week, they said, you know, when things are going our way, we don't pray very well. I've been saying that for years, and I'll say it about me. I should say, I say that about me. When things are going well, I don't pray all that good. Well, I guess as well. But man, when things go bad, I think I can pray with the best of them. And you know what? I challenge you, that's what we need to do now. Is there governor overreach? Is there things that I don't like? You better believe it. In this case, Mary had to travel somewhere between six to ten days to, to cover those miles. And let's face it, she's a pregnant lady. Doesn't say she rode a donkey. I don't think pregnant ladies ride donkeys. I'm not sure. I don't know how she got there. They could have carted her there. She could have walked. I don't know, but they had to stop pretty often because if I know anything about pregnant ladies, they get tired and they've got to use the bathroom a lot. So you don't make a whole lot of time. And so it's probably taken 10 days plus for them to get there. And that's just the sign up to pay your taxes. You know what? There's political drama going on. God showed, hey, it actually fits. The Bible was right all along. And you know what? In spite of the hardship that was imposed on them, God worked out his detail. In fact, is he had said, oh, this Messiah, this king is going to be born in Bethlehem. He didn't live there. He took the hardship, the overreach, the overbearing government, and used it actually to carry out his prophecy. I said, this is hope in a time that's troubled. Folks, I don't know what you think. In some ways, I don't even care. But I do care. But you know what? If we are allowing the circumstances around us, and I don't care what you want to put in there. You can put anything in there you want because there's a lot of things going on. If you allow that to be the controlling factor in your life, you got it wrong. The controlling factor is the one who came to be salt 
and light. The one who brought light into a dark world. That's what the Bible says. If we claim to be followers of him, he says, you are to be salt and light. And so in a world where suicide is rising and psychomeds for depression are going high, are you a part of the problem or a part of the solution? People need to see hope. I hope that comes from me. That doesn't mean I, don't, I like everything's going on. I absolutely do not. In fact, I just despise some things that are going on. But you know what? My citizenship is in a higher place. It's in heaven. My thought pattern is in a higher place. I am serving the Lord. I should be that light and that salt. I should be showing that hope. Because people desperately need to see hope. Let's all stand together. Father, we thank you that um, you are a God that absolutely carries out what needs to be carried out. There is nothing in this world, government, uh, the perplexities of life, uh, a curse and a line. None of those things have stopped you from doing what you chose to do. And that's send the Redeemer. Lord, we represent that Redeemer today. Under ideal circumstances, I think not. That's never been true. But Lord, I pray that we would represent Jesus Christ as the one who gives us a hope and a life that is not just from this world, but one that has a future, that has a hope that gives us the courage to take the next step, to pray, to be a light to others. I pray that's who we would be instead of being a part of the problem and allowing the world to control our thoughts. Lord, thanks so much for reminding us of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go with God.